We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning, good morning. It's time for us to get started. Come on in. Closer to the front you can get, the better. We don't charge extra for front row seats, unlike other venues, sporting events, concerts, things like that. We've got cheap front seats. There you go, one, one or two rows up anyway, getting a, getting a little more sanctified back there. <laughs> Merry Christmas to all. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. I know that uh, you uh, normally probably have family traditions. You do the other, what, six years in the rotation between uh, times when Christmas falls on a Sunday, uh, but we're glad that you're here with us this morning. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 2 as we read another portion of the birth narrative of our Lord Jesus, obviously off of our normal reading schedule this day for the holiday. Matthew chapter 2, please. This actually comes some days, uh, even perhaps weeks after the Lord's birth which we read about last night, and again this morning, Jansen shared from chapter 1, so we go on to chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. What's a conundrum to me is how did they know practically more than the Jewish people among whom the Lord himself was born. And we'll see another interesting feature uh, of that sort when we look in Luke, uh, Luke's gospel later this morning in our message. But uh, very interesting that they knew something was happening. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ or where the Messiah was to be born. Notice that they understood the Christ was to be the king. And so they said, and by the way, I should, I should mention that. How did they know that? How could they have known that? Well, there are two, two main factors, I think, involved. Number one is the influence of Daniel the prophet and those godly people in Babylon, in the east. And where did that influence come from? It had to come from the Hebrew Bible. It had to come from the Hebrew Bible. God promised to raise up a king, Psalm 110. He promised to raise up a prophet, Deuteronomy chapter 18, out of the lips of Moses. He promised to raise up a priest, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse number 35, a prophet, a priest, and a king. He promised the Messiah to come. In the Old Testament, uh, Daniel chapter 9 says that Christ would come at a certain specific time and he would be cut off from the land of the living. And so that new message, which was held and, and preached by the prophets, written by the prophets, was passed on to these uh, people who were 
uh, from the East, not followers of the Jewish faith, and yet they knew these things. And that's where that information came from. And so these folks knew the Messiah, the Christ, was going to be a king. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written, where? By the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Shepherd means to rule. That's a Hebrew language or thought for someone who is the ruler, leader in the nation. Verse 7, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Okay, there's a bold-faced lie. Verse 9, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star in which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw, and by the way, that's a house, that's not the manger, that's not a barn. They had evidently moved by this time into some better quarters. They saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these gifts being appropriate for a king. Verse 12, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Oh, if only we had a little bit more detail about that frantic flight into the land of Egypt. Verse 15, And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death. Okay, let me pause there in the middle of 16. That's why I know that he was lying when he said that he wanted to go and worship the child. Really what he wanted to do is go kill the child because it was, the boy was a um, threat to his family lineage ruling over the nation. So he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. 
you know, I encourage folks when you're reading the Bible here, you probably, you know, you go from Malachi and you see this page in your Bible called the New Testament, and then you keep reading and you kind of think, well, that's a different book. Well, I want you to think of it a little differently. Matthew, the beginning of Matthew is really an Old Testament book. It belongs with the prophets. It's a fulfillment of what those prophets said. And uh, I think it's interesting to think about the Bible that way as a unified whole, a, a unity, not two books separated from one another and one fiction, uh, one, one, one history and one fiction. You know, the Old Testament, well, that's history. And then the New Testament, well, that's fiction. No, it's actually they're, they're one and the same. And so I encourage you to think that way. This is a, an organic connection right back from all of the things that were said in the Hebrew Bible and all fulfilled here. Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to ask if the um, gentleman would come up to take the offering now, and um, we will uh, ask Selah to come as well and share her uh, offertory. Thank you, Selah. Yeah, you can, you can use this one. That'd be fine. Let me uh, move this down a little bit. Is that...
morning. This song is The Shepherd's Rejoicing. Thank you, both Selah and Naomi, for those music ministries. Let's pray together this morning, and then we'll have our uh, hymn before the uh, message. We're going to ask the, uh, by the way, ask the young people to stay in for that hymn instead of running off to uh, junior church because it's away in a manger. And so we want you to sing that with us, and then we can release you for the junior church program. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look later this In this hour at the shepherds, we thank you for the thoughts that we might have uh, been able to have as the music was playing just now. And prior to that, as we considered the joy that is to the world because the Lord has come. And Lord, I pray that by and by, soon, the earth will indeed receive her king with uh, open arms, with gladness, with joy and uh, those who are skeptical would begin to see the wondrous joy that can be had by embracing him as Savior and King. Lord, for those that are not well in our midst, some more seriously ill than others, we commend them into your care and ask that you would help them to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and learn what they can 
learn and glean from uh, this trial that they're facing, whether it's uh, some pneumonia, as one of our brothers has, and one of our sisters unable to get out this morning due to a recurrence of her uh, coughing fits and all, and, and then others just generally down. We're praying, Lord, that you'll raise them up to good health, Lord, that they will not be frustrated at their illness, looking for people or things to blame for the origin of those illnesses, remembering, Lord, that we dwell in a cursed world. We dwell in a world in which sin and death and disease and suffering and sorrow are part and parcel of our existence. You have permitted it to be so for your good reasons. We have caused it to be so by our bad reasons as humans. And Father, I'm praying that you will help us to see the good that you intend to bring out of the difficulties that we face. Some of us, Lord, haven't faced difficulties hardly at all. A few illnesses here and there in our young lives. We haven't walked the valley of the shadow of death. We haven't struggled and suffered with different things over the course of months or years as some of our older saints have. So, Lord, teach us uh, to not despise them who are going through those tough times knowing that we ourselves will soon face similar. And now, Lord, as we come before you and acknowledge this special day we've set aside, knowing that it's not likely that this exact date those many years ago and was the exact date of the birth of our Savior, but we have selected this date as the one to set aside for the celebration of his birth. We thank you that we can do that. We thank you that we have the truth from Scripture that teaches us about His coming. And we thank you, too, for the truth that we find in Scripture about His coming again. Now, Lord, may we be strengthened in our faith. If any are doubters or skeptics, may they be, uh, may their outlook be changed by your Spirit. Would He work mightily in our midst to work that change in our hearts. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the great thing that you have done in sending your only son into the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hymn number 232 before the message, please. 232. While Jansen comes up, I'll just acknowledge uh, we have uh, a sort of guest here. Uh, Ryan has uh, come, and along his side is his sister. She doesn't want to be recognized, but I'm doing it anyway because she's a special person to us, having been here many years ago and now back with us. So God bless you for coming. We're grateful that you're here. Sad that Thurman can't be here, but uh, he's going to recover soon enough, and he'll be up in his assigned seat up here in the front giving his uh, pastoral encouragement to the preacher and we're looking forward to that. All righty, Jansen. Yeah. All right, would you stand with me as we sing hymn number 232, Away in a Manger, and as Pastor uh, suggested, the children will stay in here through the rest of the hymn, and they can be dismissed uh, at the end of verse 3.
you may be seated, and the children, you may go off now to your children's church ministry. Well, I've been looking forward to sharing this message with you this morning. I actually have, you'll be horrified to know, two messages I worked on this week. And I'm tempted to give them both to you, but no temptation has taken me except such as is common to preachers. And so I, I will resist the temptation. I uh, say that just because I really enjoyed this week studying a couple of portions of Scripture. In, uh, they both happen to be in Luke chapter 2, so if you turn there... I'll share with you one of those, Luke chapter 2. We were privileged to give uh, Jansen uh, a good bit of time in the pulpit this uh, weekend, and so I didn't have as much. But it doesn't hurt me to study the scriptures at all and uh, have something for the future. So Luke chapter 2, if you would please, and verse number 8 Over the years, I've written several messages on how the first Christmas looked from the perspective of different characters who were in the story, in the history. And I'll call that kind of the series, Perspectives on Christmas. And I wrote messages on the perspective of Joseph on the whole situation, Mary, Zacharias, Simeon, who you might recall having a little part in Luke's gospel, um, the wise men. Herod, and in this message, I'm going to revisit the perspective of the shepherds on Christmas. I hope in the future, and and one of these messages, the other one that I produced here is the perspective of Christmas from the viewpoint of Anna in later in Luke chapter 2, just three verses there, but an interesting section of scripture. And then I hope also to add Elizabeth, the angels, and even John the Baptist, uh, although he was exceedingly young at the first Christmas, was he not? But uh, he had a little something to say to us even before he was born, and a very interesting portion of Scripture there. So hopefully this message will build up your faith and not be merely an academic exercise, but that depends on one key thing, and that is it depends on your perspective on Christmas your perspective on Christmas. How do you look at the things of which we speak? And so I want to first read to you the text. It's in Luke 2, verse number 8, and it says this, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, 
which the Lord made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard as it was told them. So the text of this portion is really divided into two sections. First, you have the angelic proclamation. And then secondly, you have the shepherds going to see uh, the Lord Jesus. And so it was that the proclamation came. It was at night, the text of Scripture tells us. They were living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, I, I read one commentary or heard somebody, I, I think it was, I heard somebody say this, that they, they may have been these shepherds, you know, having their sheep in the fold, and there they were guarding them, making sure nothing came into the fold, and, and they're all, you know, kind of locked in and everything was good. But the text, the scripture tells us there was no, not necessarily a rock-walled fold or a fence here. They were living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks. Now, just you could pause there and just imagine what it is to live out in the fields at night. Can you imagine? Any kind of weather, cold, warm, rain, sweltering heat, humidity, um, any kind of conditions, and you're out there all the time with these animals, making sure that they are okay and protected from wild beasts and thieves and rustlers and all the rest. That's quite an existence, isn't it? Have you ever stayed out in an open field uh, camping? Some of us haven't ever done that. The closest we get to camping is going to a hotel, right? Yeah, Other, others of us probably a little more adventurous get out into the great outdoors. But they were living in the fields, keeping watch over the sheep at night. And the night setting here helps to highlight the bright glory of the angelic visitor. The darker the background, the brighter the light of that visitor who came. Perhaps against a starry sky in the background, but yet still dark. And one angel from heaven came. Now, this wasn't the angel of the Lord, as it's said in, uh, in the Old Testament, the angel of Yahweh, as, it's, as the name is called, the angel of the Lord, which is, we believe, a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. But not that here, another angel came to make an announcement to the shepherds. Now, it doesn't tell us uh, here we, uh, we see the name of this angel, although we know the name of the angel from the prior two announcements in Luke. That angel was who? Remember? Yeah, the mighty one of God, uh, the Gabriel named angel who made the two earlier appearances in chapter 1, 119 and 126, one to Zacharias, one to Mary to announce the birth of their respective children. But no, angel, no name is given specifically to the angel here. Now, naturally, because angelic visitants are not so common and never had occurred to these shepherds in the fields watching over their flocks at night, they were understandably very afraid. 
You would be very afraid, I would expect, wouldn't you? Some angel appeared in the middle of the night in your home, glowing in brightness and giving you a message from on high. You would probably be shaking. No shame in that, just wisdom. They were trembling in their boots, scared of what was going to be said. Now, notice this, with this, the shepherds being sent um, to the angels here, and then the, I'm going to get to the proclamation now. We're just kind of setting the stage. But note this, God did not send the angels to Herod. He didn't send the angels to the Roman governor. Later, that Roman governor was Pontius Pilate, but not now. That was, that was years, you know, three decades later or so. Whoever the Roman governor was didn't receive the visitation from the angels. Caesar didn't receive the visitation from the angels. The Pharisees didn't see the angels. The scribes, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders, the Sanhedrin, nor the wealthy people in Israel who were the power brokers, the elite, none of them were the recipients of the angelic visit. Who was it? The shepherds. In the social credit system of ancient Near East, shepherds were nothing. Shepherds were the lowest of blue-collar workers, could I say, considered by some to be unclean, dirty, uh, dirt-under-the-fingernails kinds of people, crude perhaps. They were looked down upon as poor and so forth. Yet God sent the angel to tell them of the salvation of the Messiah that he was providing. And uh, this perhaps was in part uh, some of the thought behind what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. I remember an illustration that our former pastor used one time from that passage where it said, not many, not many mighty, not many noble, not many wealthy, and there was a lady who was kind of in that category of wealthy and nobility who said, I was saved by the letter M. It doesn't say not any. It says not many, M-A-N-Y. Thank God that the M is there. And I'll tell you, frankly, because most of us sitting here are in the top 1% to 3% of the world's population in terms of wealth. You agree? Not many, but hopefully us. You can tell if a person is proud, by the way, if they don't make significant room in their heart for Jesus. The proud person doesn't need Jesus, they think. They don't want anything to do with him. God didn't send the angel to the proud. He sent the angel to the lowly to give them the message of salvation. That ought to tell us something about the people to whom we will find to be responsive to the message of the gospel, perhaps more than the noble and the mighty and the wealthy and the proud and all of that. 
like we see in Roman, or 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So now in verses 10 through 14, we come to the proclamation. They were afraid, but the angel opens the proclamation by saying what? First words, do not be afraid. Because the angels were not bringing a message of judgment. Now, sometimes angels did bring a message of judgment, didn't they? Think of the first book of the Bible. Think of Genesis 19. Angels come into city of Sodom and Gomorrah, and what are they doing? They're looking around to see, and then they're going to send judgment from heaven on this place because of its wickedness. Or in Revelation uh, chapter 14, you have the three angels that uh, make their way through the, the midst of heaven, the heavens, the, the uh, atmospheric heaven, and they pronounce woe and doom on the world. So angels do bring messages of judgment, but this is not a message of judgment. This is a message of good news about Jesus Christ, first and foremost. It's a message, as they say, of good tidings, of great joy, which will be to all people. It is a message of salvation, not of judgment. Uh, It's a message of him as Lord, a message of him as Savior. And this concurs well with what Jesus himself said some three decades later when in John chapter 3 and verse number 17, the Bible says, this is the lips of Jesus, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, obviously, when you have light, The light is kind of demonstrated most strongly when it's set next to the darkness. The candle is the brightest when it's in the darkest room. It's not going to be very bright in here, but if we had no light in here and I lit a candle, you'd be thankful for that little light because it would seem like a lot more. And so when the Lord came to bring salvation, that also implies that there is some judgment or some message of of darkness that goes with that because if you don't receive his salvation, then you're left with, whatever's left. And so, yes, there is an attached kind of message of collateral or collateral message of judgment, but the focus, the point, is a message of salvation, good tidings to all people. The tidings are to all people, aren't they? All the families of the earth, not just to those people who share ethnic heritage with the Messiah. Yes, the Jewish people are greatly impacted by his coming. But he has, as the scripture tells us, other sheep, not of this fold, which he will bring to himself. And what he, mean, what he means by that, if I can just make it plain for you, is there are Gentile people, not Jews, Gentiles, who will come into his people and be joined together with them. John 10.16 tells us that. Now, he also will be the Savior. He will do something. Now, it's not specified by the angels to these shepherds, but which we know well what he did. Uh, they will, he will provide for the saving of humanity from the predicament of separation from God due to sin. Listen, as low as you might have gone into sin, as far away as you may have strayed from God, as deeply as you may have become entangled in the things of your life, even at this moment you might feel tangled up in sin. Jesus can untangle you. 
He can unstray you. He can bring you to himself because that's why he came. It's not like he, he came to be Savior and then he had an impotence to be able to save. He came to be a Savior to the exact kind of people that we are. As deep as we go into sin, as tangled up as we get in the cords of, of bondage, he can undo that. He can release us. That is his specialty. That is his specialty. Okay? He specializes in rescuing people of whom it can be said, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, but God's arm has not been shortened that it cannot save. It can save. It does save. That's what the angel says. Look at again. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, for there is born to you in this day in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The city of David from whence he comes is an unmistakable reference to the house of bread, Bethlehem, Beit Lechem, Israel's bread basket, I call it, the house of bread, which in turn was the birthplace of the bread of life. Jesus said in John 6 a number of times, I am the bread of life. I'm the one who came down from heaven to nourish you. And if you partake of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will be saved, by which he means if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 11. It says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He's identified specifically. This is the Messiah. And I have to pause here to marvel at this thought. Namely, throughout Jesus' ministry, there was a question about who this guy is. Who is this Jesus? The woman at the well, John chapter 4, knew that the Messiah was coming, but she didn't know that it was the man right in front of her. The high priest in the courtroom scene in Matthew 26 that we just looked at in our series in Matthew demanded Jesus to tell whether he was the Christ or not. Are you the Son of God, the Messiah? Jesus said to him, it is as you say. The disciples themselves took a while to figure it out. Remember Peter, when Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? He said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was some time into his ministry. John 12, 34 shows the crowds had confusion about the Messiah's role, but they knew somebody was going to come. Some Christ, some Messiah figure would be coming. John chapter 9, the leaders of Israel had a policy. If anybody confesses this guy, Jesus, to be the Christ, we're kicking him out of the synagogue. And so that pressure was put on people to misidentify who Jesus was and a number of other places as well in the New Testament text of the Gospels. But the Bible says that the angels from heaven came and identified him as the Messiah. Why is there so much confusion over who Jesus is? Now, had the news about the angelic visit to the shepherds been spread abroad initially, and it was, as we'll see, we read, 
And had that news been kept in a local and institutional memory, but it was not, no one, if, if it had been though, no one would have asked who this Jesus is. They would have said this baby, they would have followed the life of that child from his birth forward all of his years because the angels from heaven came down and said, this is the Messiah. Why do we have confusion over who he is? The angelic visitors witnessed by these shepherds testified to Mary and Joseph and all those in the area around them, as we'll see, testified that he is the Christ. The angel who had just been bowing in the presence of the Son of God, let's say nine months prior. I'm not saying that the Messiah, the Son of God, totally exited heaven. He was, he's always everywhere present, but let's just say for our spatially you know, kind of oriented minds, Christ left, he came and was in Mary and born, and nine months ago, The angel had been bowing and worshiping the Lamb of God who is going to take away the sins of the world. And now he's telling the people, these shepherds, that one that I was worshiping has been born in Bethlehem. Now he gave a sign in Luke 2. And this will be the sign, verse 12. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now, we've talked about signs. Remember signs? The sign of the rainbow, the sign of circumcision, the sign of the Sabbath. We looked at those last week or two weeks ago, whatever it was. We've seen those signs. In this case, and those signs were about covenant promises, the covenant with, uh, with Noah, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with Abraham. But here the sign is a sign about a person. The sign of a person, the attire of that person and the location of that person. What's he going to be wearing? Swaddling cloths. Where is he going to be? In a manger. These were meant to uniquely identify this little baby Messiah to the shepherds. And why? Because the angel knew when he identified them that these shepherds were going to go see this great sight, which they had been told. How could you, how could you not? If the angel told you what he's, where he's at, what he's going to look like, you would go hunting for him too, wouldn't you? Searching for the Messiah, if your perspective on Christmas was correct, the first Christmas. Now, the swaddling cloths, they probably weren't too unique, right? Probably every baby. I mean, how many babies have you seen out of St. Joe Hospital wrapped in those white blankets with the blue and pink stripes on them? Every single one, the same. You know, it's it's a, a wonderful tradition. But here, swaddling cloths, now that's not too unique. But what about a baby lying in a manger? Let me just ask you, mothers, which of you are gonna lay your baby in a manger? What is a manger? It can refer to several things. Typically, it refers to a feeding trough, a stall. It could be a structure with a place for domestic animals to be housed as well. So cows, sheep could be in one section, and then you know, kitchen and bedroom right next to it, open air. Okay, that's real living right there. <laughs> um, 
It could be an animal enclosure. A manger could be what is called in farming a crib. Now, when, you, when I say crib, none of you probably, most of you aren't farmers, so you think crib, okay, you think of the place where a baby lays, you know, sleeps. But this isn't a baby crib that I'm talking about. It is a, a slatted or barred structure that you might have seen cows stick their head in between the bars or over the top of it, and they pull the hay out to eat it. That's what a crib is. And we get the name crib from, you know, that kind of slatted structure that might have, you know, kind of slats on it for the feed to stick out the sides. Well, we miniaturize it and make it smaller, and we make it for a baby. So the baby won't fall out through the sides or get its head stuck between the slats. The slatted structure of the animal feeding crib looks a lot like a baby's bed with slatted sides. But I ask again the question, which of us mothers would put our babies into a manger with animal slobber, germs, unclean, you know? Couldn't be good for the baby, could it? That's the unique part of this situation. Then, after telling this, suddenly there appeared with the angel a bunch of his co-workers having sped from heaven to earth to ascribe glory to God in the highest and peace toward men on the earth. God is the highest. His glory is the highest. He's worth the most extreme and extravagant praise. Glory to God in the highest. But what about peace toward men. There's a little debate here. Is it peace toward men of goodwill or is it peace, goodwill toward men? I'm not going to get into that debate at this point. It's not our point this morning to dig into that. But in any case, we can be sure that the message of joy and gladness, which was given by the angels to the people, was a real serious olive branch from heaven. You know what I mean by olive branch? You know that phrase? An, 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 uh, an expression of peace, an offering of peace. From God in heaven to a world at enmity with God, God extends an olive branch in this announcement, saying that I am providing an opportunity for peace. You may have peace with the God of heaven. Of course, if you're living in sin... You're at enmity with God. If you're a friend of the world, you're not a friend of God. And so God sends this angelic message to tell us, here's the Christ, he's the Savior, he's the one that can bring peace if you receive him, if you're connected to him. We should all recognize this as a serious, serious olive branch from heaven. More than just a mere gesture, but an extended hand sticking out of heaven looking for fellowship. God wants to have a fellowship with you, with his people, and you to be his people and him to be your God forever and ever. That's the message here. He's going to be a savior, and he's looking for bringing peace on earth. Not just you know world peace like no war in Ukraine and no war anywhere in the world. That's, that's what we want that too. But we're talking about a deeper kind of peace, the peace with God that brings world peace with it. 
Well, now the shepherds visit the baby in verses 15 to 20. These sheep herders don't sit around looking at one another for very long. They say, hey, let's, let's go find this thing which we've been told. It's a perfect time to go see the great sight of the Messiah. I wonder which shepherd got left behind to watch the sheep and all the other ones got to go see the baby. Or if they went in shifts, you know, some went and came back and then these ones went, doesn't tell us, we don't know the details, but if anybody was left behind, poor, poor person that wasn't able to see this great sight. And so they went and hunted around for the baby in Bethlehem until they found him in a manger, just like the angel had said. And I have no doubt, although it doesn't give us all the details, they must have expressed worship at the time when they went. And they told Mary and Joseph what happened. The angelic visitation had come, they would tell them, and told us about this Messiah child born in Bethlehem in a manger and swaddling cloths that he brought peace and salvation from heaven. Of course, the parents probably wouldn't be too surprised. We would be surprised if somebody came and said, an angel visited me. We would be surprised. We'd say, boy, that's, I'm pretty skeptical about that. But I don't think Mary and Joseph were skeptical at all. You know why? They had already talked to the angel themselves within the recent months, and they would get more information from God as he provided supernatural protection for this child from Herod's murderous intent against him. So they, they might have been, however, taken aback that their child was the subject of such a broad announcement. And as they would find out sooner than later, as we read in Matthew chapter 2, they were going to have to flee to Egypt. Well, fleeing for your life doesn't generally go well with people announcing, hey, look who's in Bethlehem, look at who this is, everybody finds out about it. I mean, they want to be more like undercover, not, you know, the focus of all the advertising, but they were because that's what the shepherds did. So they found out later from the Lord that Herod was seeking to destroy the child, and yet the news had been made widely known about him. Because the shepherds, when they saw this in verse number 17, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And after all, isn't it true that this was news for all people? I bring you good tidings of great joy to all people. So why should we hide this news? Why would the shepherds keep it to themselves? They did their part. Their hearers were amazed to hear this news as they went about Bethlehem and out in the fields and told the, the farmers out in the rural areas about this. They didn't treat the shepherds as if they were a bunch of crazy people. I think part of the reason perhaps that may have been is because they had several shepherds who were eyewitnesses of this event. And in the Old Testament, you have two or three witnesses. They established the matter. There's no way you can say all those people are nuts. You know, they've just been a little too tired out there in those fields watching those sheep. They couldn't dismiss so easily what had happened because it was firmly established by those eyewitnesses. The Bible tells us Mary stored this away in her heart. We looked at that when we looked at Christmas from Mary's perspective some years ago. In fact, I think she undoubtedly held on to this information until the day of the crucifixion. She would not forget what was told her about this child. She would not forget what happened when he was 12 years old, amazing the doctors of the law in the temple and seeing him grow and be subject to them and follow his father in his trade and then go out and be 
a famous evangelist and minister after John the Baptist. She wouldn't forget any of that. But back to the shepherds. What could the shepherds do but continue to praise and thank God for what they had experienced that night? Can you imagine the stories they would tell to their kids and their grandchildren, perhaps their great-grandchildren if they had the privilege to have them? The stories they would tell around the campfire to their co-workers as they watched the sheep many a future night. We're kind of like the shepherds, I think. We should recognize at least that we're lowly in the eyes of the world, yet greatly privileged to be given the news of Christmas, the news of a rescuer who will save his people from their sins. And so we make widely known the saying, to all those around us. And I hope we make it known to our children and grandchildren as well. The fact that the angels visited and told us that the Messiah was born to be our Savior is tremendously important. It's news that is second to nothing. These, which we have described this morning, are the Christmas tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. I invite you this morning to consider what the shepherds experienced and to align your perspective with their perspective on what they saw that first Christmas night when the child was born and they went to see him, to worship him. Do you worship him? Do you seek to see him? Do you seek to search for him? Do you want him? Do you want peace with God? If you do... There's one, one and only one place to get it, the Messiah, the Christ who came from God in heaven to Bethlehem on earth to give his life a sacrifice so that you could have eternal life. That's the peace. That's how God wrought the peace with men. And if you have faith in Christ, by that faith you are now justified in him and have, Romans 5, 1 says, have peace with God. And that's the reason that Jesus came. Join me in prayer, please. Father, I pray that we will not be dull to the truth that has been described to us in Luke's gospel in chapter 2 and the perspective of the shepherds. Thank you for allowing us to add this viewpoint to our library of viewpoints of Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna and the angels and the shepherds now and Herod and the wise men and all the rest who were firsthand observers of this situation. Lord, I pray that you bring salvation to everyone who's listening to these words, that you will bring uh, peace with you, that that hand extended from heaven as an olive branch will be received and grasped firmly and with gratitude in our hearts and not rejected, not turn away from it, but to embrace it. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.